Today, as we look at Genesis 20, if you have your Bibles, you can open to Genesis 20. Um, I'll be uh, using the ESV version. We're looking at Abraham and his call from God was to be a sojourner, a wanderer, someone who has no roots in this world. And in chapter 12, Genesis chapter chapter 12, the Lord said to Abraham, starting in verse 1, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in, all, in, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Right? So the Lord uprooting him, taking him out to somewhere, from Abraham's perspective, somewhere to the place the Lord will show him. Right? And so if, if you have some chance, if you have some time this week, go ahead and read Abraham's story starting in chapter 12 and see he goes from one place to another from some, you know, circumstances to another. And sometimes he's faithful. He trusts God, right? He did leave his homeland. We see him in that same chapter going out and worshiping God near a place of idol worship, you know, in front of these pagans. But then other times he didn't trust God. So at the end of that same chapter 12, he and his wife go down to Egypt and he's scared. So he says, well, she's my sister so that they won't kill him and take his beautiful wife. And so they, he puts on this charade. They take her anyway, and the Lord is faithful to save them out of Egypt. And so it continues on back and forth. Abraham trusts sometimes, not trusting others. But God, God is always faithful to Abraham. He's, he kept providing kept protecting, and he kept promising that he would bless Abraham, that he would be a shield to him. Whereas it says in Genesis 17, God says, I will be your God. He's undoing what was done at the Garden of Eden with the curse, the separation of the relationship between man and God. In Abraham. And so we come to Genesis 20. Abraham's wandered here and there. And we see in verses 1 and 2 this. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Here he is doing it again. In fact, a lot of people will say, well, Moses just got lazy and recycled some material when he wrote Genesis because surely no one would do that twice. But once again, Abraham is doubting God. And by this point, God has specifically promised that he will have a son with Sarah. And so now he's putting those promises in danger by 
not clinging to her, and she's taken off into the court of some king. And so what does God make of this doubt? Is this it? Can we exhaust that faithfulness that we just sang of? As we read through this chapter, we see that it is precisely because God knows our hearts, that he knows our hearts better than we do, that his steadfast love is the only hope for our stubborn hearts. And so I'm going to read, starting back at verse 1, through verse 18, the end of the chapter. From there Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech king of Gerar sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he himself not say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you, that you have brought on me in my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought, There is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. Do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham, and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Let's pray before we go any further. Lord, we thank you that 
that you have made yourself known to sinners. And God, we need you to do that now. We need you to soften our hearts, to convict us of our sin and our unfaithfulness so that we may wonder at your love displayed of in the, the raising up of your people in Christ. In his name we pray, amen. You may or may not have read that story before, but the first time you did, who did you think God was going to show up to in a dream in verse 3? It seems like Abraham would be the logical choice, right? He's the one who's lying. But we see this interaction in verses 3 through 7 where God is claiming to know and to judge our hearts and the hearts of all mankind. He shows up with this proclamation, right, in verse 3. Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman you have taken, for she is a man's wife. He holds court in Abimelech's dream. And so Abimelech makes his defense, right? I, I didn't know. Like, really, I didn't know? And he asks a question in verse 4 that echoes something Abraham has said, right? Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Just two chapters back in uh, Genesis 18, Abraham said to the Lord in verse 25, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? So Abimelech makes his case. They are the ones who said this. I was just doing based on what I heard. He's echoing Abraham's cry. He's echoing many of our cries for justice, right? Many of the cries of people in the world. We don't need to agree with what justice looks like in this world to see that there are many, many in this world who are at least crying out for justice. And God's claim is that he is just. That he judges all. So he replies to Abimelech, first with the claim that man's heart is open to him. In verse 6, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. He knows. He doesn't need to Abim listen to Abimelech make his case. As Job 34 says, God has no need for us to actually go in judgment before him and listen to our arguments. He knows. He sees what we do. He sees into our hearts. He knows the depths of man's heart. And God claims that our sin is against him. Right? It was I who kept you from sinning against me. 
so that Jesus will tie together love of God and love of neighbor as one thing, <laughs> right? So that when we slander others or call them a fool or idiot, even in our hearts, <laughs> we're not just sinning against that person, we're sinning against God himself. And then God claims That mankind's ignorance and sin and rebellion is restrained by him. Twice, right? It was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. We talk a lot and we rightly lament often evil that is in the world and things being done not in accordance to God's law. And we may even feel that things are getting worse. But God says it could be even worse. It should be even worse. That the state of the world, the state of our hearts, are restrained from full-on consequences of our rebellion, which has begun... God has been doing that since the first sin, right? When he told Adam and Eve, rebellion against me deserves death. And yet when they sinned, though they died spiritually, he allowed them to live physically. And so the Lord calls Abimelech to submit to him. Return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return to her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. He sets the terms. He even picks Abraham, who has now been shown to be a lying conniver, as the one who's supposed to pray for Abimelech. If God is this steadfast toward his people, if he's showing up in holy, almost rage and judgment to protect Abraham, then why isn't Abraham as steadfast? If God is steadfast, why aren't his people which is the, the question being pressed to us with this slightly comical, if we really stop to think about it, scene in verses 11 through, or, uh, 8 through 10, right? As Abraham is rightly questioned by this unbelieving kingdom. There are, the unbelievers are the ones fearing God in verse 8. And all it took was a word from the Lord. As opposed to Israel's experience when they were in Egypt. And God raised up plague after plague against Pharaoh. And his heart got harder and harder and harder. There are no signs, no wonders, no plagues. God speaks. And Abimelech and his entire kingdom are in fear. 
And then they are rightly questioning God's man in verse 9. What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. They're right. And so certainly this story would be a shock to Israel. Having been under the yoke of Pharaoh, having been wandering from one place to another only to find opposition and oppression and hearts that are in rebellion against God. And at the end of Deuteronomy, as they're preparing to enter the promised lands, they might turn back and hear this story. This time where the unbelievers were in the right. And it may be a shock to us. Maybe. I think back to when I worked at a trading company in Novi before we went to Japan. Several of my coworkers, not Christians, knew that I was, right? And on some occasions, I wrote an angry email, said something rude in a meeting, didn't respect one of my coworkers' opinions, and they called me out on it. And there's even that feeling of, and I'm the one who says he follows God. There is unbelief exposed in God's man here. In God's people. And why? That's the question that's all Abimelech wants to know, right? Why did you do this? And Abimelech, in a way, is is asking a question even deeper than he understands. Because Abraham can look back and see all of the times God was faithful to him. When he did this the first time in Egypt, it led to God not only bringing them out, but the, the Egyptians gave them gold and silver and possessions. And all of these stories in Abraham's life where God did nothing but bless him time after time, year after year, and there is still something in Abraham that resists God and doubts him. And so God, in his mercy, is exposing Abraham's heart so that he would see That God's people wrestle with God's faithfulness. That no matter how many times we taste the goodness and love of God, we are at least tempted. There is still a whisper in our hearts. But 
what if this time he's not good? The same question, in a sense, that Adam and Eve heard in the garden. Did God really say this? Does he really care for you? What if it's all been fake? What if this is the time he lets you down? And so, like Abraham, we doubt God, as we see in verse 11. I did it because I thought, there is no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. He doubts God's justice. He doubts God's power. That God is unable to change their hearts or work in some way to protect him. Even more stark, if we turn back to chapter 19, right? We began our story with from there in verse 1. There was what? Look back at chapter 19, Sodom and Gomorrah, where God literally leveled cities because they were in rebellion against him. Abraham saw that. And then he goes to Gerar and says, maybe this time is when he stops protecting me. We contradict God, which he does in verse 12, right? God has spoken to Abraham time and time again. He has given him signs. He has given him his promises. And yet in verse 12, Abraham speaks against the Lord. Besides, she is my sister, my, my half-sister. And let's not miss in this, what is weird to us about Abraham marrying his half-sister, and might derail us here, what he's doing. He is defending himself against God. Because when we are caught in sin against others, if I'm caught in a lie, caught in a slander, I'm rude to my wife and she confronts me on it. If I defend myself, I'm not only standing against her, I'm standing against God. Abraham goes a step further, as we often do. He accuses God in verse 13. When God caused me to wander from my father's house. God is the one who put me in this situation. That's what he's saying. I wouldn't be in this predicament if it wasn't for him. There's even an added 
added meaning baked into the when. Because if we look back through Abraham's story and do math, which I know we're not always fans of, we see that he has been wandering for 24 years. And so he confesses here that for 24 years, it has been his policy to doubt God. Some of us haven't been married that long or haven't been coming to this church that long or have even been alive for that long. And Abraham is confessing that even at those times when he trusted God, there was still something in his heart that he never let go of. Something that he felt was a his, his last measure, his last resort, and it wasn't God. He was always ready that if God, when God fails me, I can fall back on this. And so in the end, he misrepresents God. To Abimelech, to his wife, with this, this plan that he calls kindness. And God exposes this to Abraham. God exposes our unfaithfulness in mercy to question us. What do we think makes someone his? And there could be three perspectives to this. The Christian who identifies with Abraham and says, yes, I I still doubt God sometimes. I still wonder, will this be the doctor's checkup where I get the news of cancer? Will this be the phone call of a death? Will this be the legislation that restrains the church? Will this be the action that derails my career? Then there's the Christian who doesn't identify with Abraham. He says, I don't see what the big deal is. I have never once doubted God. And they are looking at not God's goodness and faithfulness, in a sense, even forgetting who we are before conversion, but looking at themselves, saying, I am the reason why I am God's child. 
Or there's the perspective of the unbeliever who now finds themselves, whether here in this room or watching online, in Abimelech's shoes. (laughs) The unbeliever who has seen someone claim to be a Christian, whether on the news, in their family, at work, in government, and they see them act in a way That does not honor God. And they recognize that. (laughs) The Bible says that is possible. (laughs) And they are confronted, you are confronted, we are confronted with the same question. So then what makes someone God's? (laughs) It's what we sang of, and it's what we see beginning in verse 14. It is God's faithfulness that makes his people his own. That God's faithfulness toward his people never wavers. And as we see in verses 14 and 15 and 16, just all of these these things piled into Abraham's arms... If we miss the details of what's going on, we're missing the message. Because it could be easy to say, oh, in that case, it doesn't matter what I do. God's always going to keep my bank account full, make my house nice, give me a job in a car. That's not what he's saying here. In verse 14, Abraham's household is blessed. He's a sojourner. His job is a shepherd, essentially. He goes from here to there, taking care of sheep and goats and that kind of thing. So he gets more sheep and oxen. He gets more hired hands to help out at his household. And Sarah, his wife, comes back to him. His house is being blessed and strengthened. And then in verse 15, perhaps the words that Israel coming in the promised land wanted people to say, the land is yours. The land that God had promised to Abraham, Abimelech says, live wherever you want. You get the choice. And then in verse 16, yes, there is an insane amount of money. There are some of you who are fortunate enough to pay for a child's wedding. This thousand pieces of silver pays for a hundred weddings. But it's not about the silver. It's about Sarah's innocence. That Abimelech did not approach her, did not touch her. That God's promise to Abraham that he will give offspring through Abraham and Sarah is protected, is safe. That God keeps his promises to establish his people. And that his promise is not thwarted, derailed, or even rerouted by his people's unfaithfulness. God will establish his people as promised. 
has he not done so in Jesus Christ? Born from Abraham and Sarah's line, as Paul writes in Galatians, that when God promised Abraham would be a blessing to the nations, that the gospel, that Christ was being proclaimed then. And if we go to Matthew 1, we see the patience of God to establish Christ and his promise. You look at the genealogy in Matthew 1, going through from Abraham all the way through David down to Christ, and listing all of these people who were unfaithful to God, <laughs> such as David, <laughs> saying that God was patient with his people over centuries in order to establish them in Christ and in his work. That Abraham isn't let off the hook here, but that God sees him as righteous even now because of his faith, however weak in the promise, which we now understand, as Paul says in Romans chapter 3, that the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus." Paul saying that God wasn't just letting Abraham off the hook, or, well, I guess it's okay this time, so that he is just sometimes and lets criminals go other times. <laughs> but that from a human perspective, God was waiting centuries and centuries and centuries until Christ came and paid for the sins of his people for all time. And that because of Christ, God loves our faithless hearts. He can see all the way down into the, our darkest depths and see the doubt and the sin and the rebellion that is there and love us. So he is patient with us. He is kind with us. So that we would repent, turn from our sin, and cling to him. That is the message for the believer, for the unbeliever, that you will never find this kind of love outside of God. And finally, we see the Lord revealed. 
you may or may not have noticed that for the first 17 verses, God is named as God. Except for the one time in verse 4 when Abimelech says, Lord, which in the ESV is all lowercase. But then in verse 18 we see, for the Lord... ESV puts it in all caps to point out that it is the word Yahweh, I am. For the Lord had closed all of the wombs of the house of Abimelech, which we should conclude, Sarah being in the house of Abimelech, hers as well. The Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. God pulls back the curtain with this last little detail to show the promise was never in any danger. He never stops being faithful. There's no if. That God will be faithful. God is faithful if this happens. God is faithful if I don't have cancer or if I don't lose my job. God is Faithful. He upholds his people by his power. Even when it seems like he is not. Is he faithful when our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan are now going back underneath the Taliban's rule? Is he faithful when our brothers and sisters in Haiti are going yet another natural disaster? Is he faithful when we have another miscarriage? Is he faithful when our family members don't believe? Was he faithful when Pastor Spencer passed away? Abraham dies without seeing the promise. If you read to the end of what's recorded of Abraham's life in Genesis, he dies. <laughs> and Hebrews 11 says he dies without having seen the promise. But God is saying, I'm faithful. And for us, who are now living on the other side of the cross and the tomb, the curtain has been pulled back even a little more. Because we have seen in the cross of Christ, there is no evil that will not result in the good of God's people. And we have seen in his resurrection that nothing, even death, stops his power from keeping us in his hand. As a parent, now we have a son who's 21 months old, 
I'm realizing more and more all that my parents did for me. How ungrateful I was. How loving and patient they were. So how much more when all is revealed and we see Christ face to face will we not look back and say he was faithful. He was always, always faithful. Through it all, he was faithful. I'll end with this, which Judy thankfully read for us already. 2 Timothy 2.13. And Paul is speaking of Christ here. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. 